Hello and welcome to episode 386 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from back in Renton, Washington. There we go. Home of the Super Bowl 48 champion. From back Seattle in Renton. All right. I number eighty six. I really uh, are you. Are you making me open up the? Uh, I'm definitely every week. You should just know that you're going to open the spreadsheet because um, I could not come up with a, a good eighty six. I, I have a suspicion that uh, uh, oh Zach Miller is the okay. eighty six listed on this. Yeah, one. that's why I couldn't come up with a good eighty six. <laughs> no offense to Zach Miller, but it was it was it was a short lived tenure. Not not necessarily the most uh, memorable tenure. I believe certainly. that is Super Bowl champion Zach Miller to you, sir. That's that's fair. He was. I think fair. he was at the the tenth anniversary celebration. Yeah, and I was just like, oh yeah. <laughs> he was definitely one of the people where I was like, oh, he was on the team. Huh. News to me. Yeah, I remember him. All right. Well, we have recorded a podcast. Since last week's episode number 385, that being our emergency pod, is de- I don't think we've ever had so many the listener demand an emergency pod as we did after UW beat Oregon. I don't know if I mentioned that on that podcast. And we delivered with like 15 minutes of just oh, basically being like, 15 solid. <laughs> uh, I think that's what the people wanted, though, is the listener Zach Whitman, third Pelton brother Zach Whitman, pointed out on Twitter. You'll listen to that. You go right back to that moment of post-game euphoria enjoy. Did he say that? He did say oh, that. Oh, that's great to hear I retweeted that. it. Way to pay, t- pay attention to our Twitter account and our mentions. Uh, I, I only look at the uh, suggested page. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look at the following. <laughs> Just tweets of Elon Musk for some reason. Well, we're not following uh, anyone, so if you log into the Pelton cast, uh, you're not getting anything. We'll talk more about that. I, we have to talk more about that game. Obviously. Yeah. I just, literally, it's like all. Do you want to do it now, mm. or save it for the UW section? They've Let's got, they've got the, the hammer. Section. Oh, we they have the hammer oh, again. Yeah, yeah. Nice job, Seahawks. Score in the fucking red zone. <laughs> I. It would be difficult for the Seahawks to take back. They the couldn't hammer have done this. They, there's nothing they could do. Yeah, I mean, what were they gonna? There's no rival for the Seahawks that it's as meaningful as Oregon. Uh, Thanksgiving Day. There will be uh, the the stakes that we were talking about national TV Thanksgiving Day against the Niners. It's still a pretty deep hatred. Sure, I think the Niners would need to be coached by Jim Harbaugh. For Brock Purdy is the Bonix of the NFL. <laughs> Honestly, that and then the Niners. So we had that Seahawks lose, right? The Niners losing on the last second field goal the next day. It definitely was like not, not the next day. The next day after the, oh, after oh, the after Huskies. The, yeah, I thought you meant after the Seahawks game. It was a little bit of like, okay, this is still a good football weekend. <laughs> it's like, whatever. Whatever happened to the Seahawks, I don't care. Both of these teams, the two teams that are the most hateable, right? I have a plenty of hate in my heart for the LA Rams, but it's not like the 49ers hate, right? And so them losing, looking pretty bad in that game, the day after the Oregon loss, in shockingly similar fashion, was, even though they were going to win the game with that field goal, right? Like, that is correct. That was a much bigger swing. So it, it was pretty, pretty nice. All right. Well, let's get into it, starting with this week's fresh hop beer from our friends at Russian River Brewing. It is their Hop Growers Tribute Series with CLS Farms from Yakima Valley, the fresh hop uh, region of Washington. 
Uh, excited to announce the upcoming release of our Hop Growers Tribute series featuring CLS Farms. While we have previously showcased our beloved hop growing partners in many brews, this is the first time we brewed enough to keg and bottle for distribution as well. CLS Farms is owned and operated by fifth generation hop growers Eric and Shelley Desmaray, pictured here on Instagram. Uh, we'll link that in the post note with, with, uh, I don't know who the me is in this, me and Vinny during last year's harvest. This beer is brewed with CLS, Eldorado, Chinook, Comet, and Zappa hops. And it was, this is fresh. This was bottled on October 1st. Wow. That's so really fresh. We begin these, this week's toast naturally. With Michael Mid- Penix Jr. Oh, not Midwestern Pizza. Okay. Oh, no. We'll get to okay. that. We'll get to that. I just, you said naturally, and I, I heard toasts. I knew that there was Midwestern Pizza. First coming. off, there's nothing natural about Provol cheese. <laughs> well, you don't even know that. <laughs> yes, I do. It can't be called cheese. It legally can't be called cheese. <laughs> I got to try that cheese. Product. This is like everything people say. I'm just like, I need this cheese more and more. <laughs> everything you hear about how awful it is, <laughs> you're like, oh, man. Uh, Michael Penix Jr. named Davey O'Brien National Quarterback of the Week. Somehow was not Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week. Who was Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week? I, uh, Eric Ayominor? Is that the name of the Stanford wide receiver? Oh, he I did mean, have a pretty that awesome game, game. Honestly, like we talked about this. Obviously, Penix had the big moment. Penix had a great game, but like... No, it, it was, wasn't anywhere close to his best game of the season. It was by far his worst completion percentage. That's what I'm saying. It was a great game over. Like, I don't want to criticize the game that Michael Penn Obviously had, not. But for being the quarterback of the week Ellen nationally. Ellen is the uh, Stanford wide receiver. It kind of makes sense to me. Like, that, the game that he had, Alec Ayumanor, was the best college football game that he will ever have in his entire life. Without Michael Penix, it might be the best stakes, everything else. Performance on the field. Might be the best moment. May, maybe if you were adjusting it, right? Maybe if they had quick reads for college football, maybe it would look a little bit better because that Oregon defense is good. But it's impressive that Michael Penix can be the national quarterback of the week, <laughs> of the week in a week that he did not play necessarily that amazing. It's, it is quite remarkable. All right, next up, congrats to O.L. Reign for clinching a playoff spot with a win on Sunday's NWSL Decision Day, moving up to the fourth seed, ensuring a final home match for Megan Rapino at Lumen Field this Friday. More to come on that one. Uh, we're saying a farewell this week. Pouring one out. To two beers, bro. Literally. We're, we're, we should eventually pour out a two beers when they're ceasing operations, which announced... Well, I mean, those, you know, might, they might appreciate in value now. <laughs> should hang on to those. Which announced it will end production in December. Sister business Seattle Cider Company will continue operating out of the woods space in Soto, which is a, a cool spot, certainly. So a bummer. Two beers. We had their their Fresh Hop IPA earlier in Fresh Hop season and at the start of it, because traditionally they are always the first to get their Fresh Hop beer to market that I say. So. Kind of an institution. I was a little surprised by this one. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what this says about the state of the brewing industry. We previously saw Optimism Brewing uh, close their production and, you know, sell sell that space uh, to Stoop Brewing, I believe it was, earlier this year. So it seems like a bit of a, a contraction, a retrenchment in the brewing market as people turn to other non-beer alcoholic drinks of choice, I guess. Interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. If this was Como News, there'd be like a 10-part series. <laughs> the death of Seattle's breweries. <laughs> this death, yeah. Seattle's breweries are dying. Yeah. 
Oh, kudos to Climate Pledge Arena, which announced Monday it's become the first arena ever certified as zero carbon by the International Living Future Institute after, among other criteria, managing to eliminate all fossil fuels from the venue, operate on 100% renewable energy, and track, measure, and offset all carbon emitted from the building. So, look, it's easy to be cynical about the uh, the Climate Pledge and Climate Pledge's arena's name, but they legitimately are... are Doing it in terms of being, you know, good stewards for the environment. No one wants to drink anymore. <laughs> Why would you go and drink if the government will just pay you to sit at home and drink for free? <laughs> okay, well, that brings us to a much more fun topic. They'll find a way to tie it to homelessness in Seattle as well. People didn't want to go to two beers because they were afraid because of how terrifying the city of Seattle is. Which is how many of the Iowa listener are there? There's more? They're multiplying? So Nathan Holmes is the Iowa listener who okay. has emailed us previously. He, he After last week's discussion about whether there is Iowa-style pizza, <laughs> you wondering whether every Midwestern area has its own style of pizza, emailed to say, we do not, don't have unique or good pizza. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I we, appreciate the update. I actually appreciate the people of Iowa for not just feeling like they needed to claim a pizza. Agreed. There's no Seattle-style yeah. pizza, although I guess it would probably have cream cheese on it now that I thought of it. Pagliacci is Seattle-style pizza in, in St. Louis. Honestly, I, I respect Iowa for it. But we also got an email from Sanjay Chapuri, who said, as requested, the Iowa listener here, not the same person who wrote it earlier, <laughs> so there are at least two of us. I didn't know we had more than two listeners. <laughs> I'm definitely envisioning the Tobias. There are dozens of us. Gif here. To weigh in on ambiguous Midwestern pizza, I'm entering my fifth year living in Iowa City and have never come across specifically Iowa-style pizza, so you're safe this week. <laughs> Furthermore, I went to college in a small town in Minnesota and have visiting, been visiting the Twin Cities regularly my whole life since my dad's family lives there and have never heard of Minnesota-style Thank pizza. Thank you. Who is this? Either. Sa- Sanjay. Chapuri. Sanjay Chapuri. Thank you, Sanjay, for speaking truth to power to the people of Minneapolis. So I'm not sure what the place advertising Minnesota pizza says it is. The only thing I noticed about pizza in Minnesota, much more so than in Iowa, is that it is significantly more likely to be cut into squares, much to my dismay. Which That is the tavern-style aspect, which we did hear about with Minnesota-style pizza. We also, I think, heard that maybe maybe too many toppings for the thin cracker. Yeah, yeah, we we talked about it, the whole Mall Mall of America thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, love the pod. Thanks for putting it out, the Iowa listener. And Sanjay also said along, uh, I was in Baltimore this work, for work this summer and figured while I was emailing you, I'd show you my visit to a Peltoncast holy site at Camden Yards. It is, we'll have to post this. A photo, uh, a plaque d- denoting where Sam Haggerty's home run landed. What? At, the, at, at Camden Yards. That is incredible. I, I don't know why this is a thing. They have plaques for like, balls that go out of the park or something? I guess so. It was only 399 feet, so. But I guess if you time that right in, in right field, perhaps that's sufficient. I love that they do it for opposing teams also. Yeah. Sam Haggerty has one. Like, honestly. I assumed it was going to be the B&O Warehouse in Griffey's home run. I don't yeah. know if that still exists. Oh, my God. I'm so excited about this. Think about all the things that you can do in life, right? <laughs> like, Sam Haggerty, when you're on, on so many people play baseball, right? Thousands of people have played professional baseball, even more when you expand that to minor leagues, to semi-pro, all sorts of different places. We saw the fish sticks banners uh, when we were there at game day, right? We did. There's so many different places to play professional baseball. Thousands of people have a baseball reference page or whatever. 
This might be the most special achievement of Sam Haggerty's entire career. This is a real, physical, tangible thing in the city of Baltimore honoring Sam Haggerty. That is incredible. Yeah. So I didn't do any research on that. We may have to do some research on... Wow, I'm going to Baltimore in December. Yeah, go check it out. I'll be there. We also got this email from uh, Duncan Winter who says, Hey guys, I was born in White Center and grew up on Brashon. I spent my early years taking Metro from Fauntleroy to the Kingdom to watch Harold Reynolds. Even though I moved to the Bay Area almost 20 years ago, every summer I drive my family up to Seattle to visit my family and make sure they get a firm dosage of taco time, dicks, and ferry boats. Wow. Anyways, love the podcast, and it really helps me feel connected to a place I still consider home. Sign me up for the live show when the Sonics come back. There we go. Wait, that'd actually be kind of fun. That would be kind of fun. I agree. Uh, white, I mean, that's like, I assume age range is probably about the same. Growing up in White Center, or, or, or being born in White Center, and growing up in Vashon, I would describe him as having basically our exact same childhood. <laughs> like, there couldn't be no, we don't, any, we, any more we of We missed out the, on the Harold Reynolds Mariners era, because I guess we did not pay attention to the Mariners. I mean, maybe not, because, I mean, I was 11. Like, I certainly could have watched Harold Reynolds. In 93, when we started paying attention to baseball. You know Damon goes way back with the Mariners. He proved that to us on Saturday. (laughs) Yes, I claimed there were no Mariners fans before 1995, and he took umbrage. Yeah. He he didn't just take umbrage. He showed you what was what. He he started referencing Phil Bradley and various other (laughs) 80s Mariners. Various other mustachioed Mariners. Uh but I do like it when there's people. It's like how we, we find the exact target audience, which is people oh, yeah. who had our precise childhood. There are uh, a shocking number of them in Iowa, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> did any of the people in Iowa say that they had their, our exact childhood? No, they, they did not. Are they from it. the southwest part of Seattle? I, I don't think they have said that. They, they never referenced anything about going to Sons of Italy picnics in Maple Valley. Who referenced that? Well, that's the Sally Brothers. The Sally Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. All right, our last email this week. Oh, wow. Which also takes into, into a Mariners oh, segment. Oh, God. Are you kidding me? Zach, I see the title of this email, and I'm already angry. Zach Jabal emails us through Belden Brother. Here I am defending the Mariners again. What? I can't believe I'm doing this again. I totally understand the fan outrage at DePoto's comments, but I do think the general conversation about the Mariners and their free agent spending or lack thereof tends to ignore the fact that this isn't like buying an item at a store. You have to actively reach an agreement with a player, and the Mariners have two major obstacles that go beyond ownership's willingness or not to spend. Number one, T-Mobile Park is one of the worst parks for hitters in baseball, and in particular is brutal on balls and play due to the dreaded marine layer and similar effects, relatively small dimensions, and general uniformity of the outfield walls. Perhaps because of that, it's also one of the most strikeout-friendly parks in baseball. Free agent hitters have been wary of signing in Seattle ever since the park opened, and for good reason. Number two, the Mariners travel more than any other team in baseball and also are, are also physically the furthest team from many of the hotbeds of baseball talent from the southeast U.S. to the Caribbean to South America. Again, these are deterrents for some free agents, to be sure. All this means to sign free agent position players, the Mariners frequently would have to not just match the next highest offer, but often supersede it as they did for Robinson Cano, and the stakes for that kind of move are, are very high. It's easy in hindsight to say that the Mariners should have signed Marcus Simeon, but the other free agents who they were linked to in the 2022 offseason, Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, have all been one shade or disaster of disaster or another. 
Beyond that, there's an incredibly annoying habit that many have of totally glossing over the fact that the team gave a $115 million contract to Robbie Ray that offseason. The Robbie Ray contract is like the most right con in Mariners history. Yes. For reference, that's a bigger free agent deal than anyone but the Astros, or anyone the Astros, Braves, Diamondbacks, Orioles, Marlins, Brewers, or Rays have signed just among playoff teams. Yes, Ray has been just okay when healthy, and sure, it's not the contracts that the Rangers or Phillies have handed out, but they also finished all of two games behind those two teams in the standings and had a better run differential than Philadelphia. This isn't to say that the Mariners don't have real needs this offseason, that they shouldn't imp- spend money to improve the team, but I think the easiest thing for fans to do is point at the free agents the time didn't, team didn't sign, conveniently ignoring the ones who have stunk, and say if they had him, they'd be in the playoffs. So, I know, I hate that I agree with this email. I didn't. One thing I didn't realize, I just kind of assumed when they moved the fences in that they had made it so, like, you know, it was a pitcher's park, but not like a dramatic pitcher's park. Yeah. But then I went and looked at it up, and uh, the the MLB uh, stats website has park factors for the last three years, like number one in strikeouts, last in overall impact on offense. Why like it is the it, biggest hitters park in a pitchers park in baseball. Why do you think strikeouts is a factor here? That's a fascinating one. I mean, do you think it's partially the Mariners pitching staff during that time? Well, period? no, because you would account for that. It's it's, it's adjusted. Yeah, it's the difference uh, in what we observe in your home games and your road games. So, I mean, I think the angle sight lines may be an issue there. I don't know. I mean, I it, it deserves further study. Also, if you feel like you're not going to be as successful putting the ball in play, and therefore you're swinging for more strike, you know, for power. At T-Mobile Park, that can lead to more strikeouts. I don't know. It's a fascinating one, though. So this is, statistically speaking, over the last handful of seasons, the biggest pitcher's park in all of baseball. The last three seasons, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Didn't seem to affect the Rangers, of course, or the Astros. <laughs> no, I mean, they, actually, they did it did at times. It was a 0-0 uh, tie <laughs> into the 18th inning against the Astros. <laughs> Famously. Famously not many runs scored in that one. I no. guess they're, they're, it's third in strikeout effect. Trop, number one, American Family Field in Milwaukee, number two, then T-Mobile Park. But uh, if you go overall park factor, Mariners, number 30, 31, because they're also ranking behind London Stadium. Oh, there we which go. Which is a, a very hitter's park. The the thing that I agree the most with, and out of all the things, because I do think it's a very a very clear-headed email, right? <laughs> oh. You can't really, really deny that. It's a, l- a little bit less than your particular defense of the Mariners. There are different ways to go out and get players more than just spending, right? Spending is a useful way to do it, but I do think when you spend more money, it is easier to get a higher degree of talent throughout the organization. There's something about having players, like even the, the when the Mariners traded all the players. Well, did we it, talk about this in the pod when you made the argument about like why do why don't the Mariners just go out and like spend all the money on you know coaches and things like that? And I'm like, yeah, it turns out actually the Dodgers already thought of that one. But Not that it seems to be helping them in the playoffs lately. Whatever, the Dodgers are fine. I think Dodgers fans, while frustrated with playoff performance, have also seen a lot of winning baseball. They're not talking about 54% with the Dodgers right now. but I also think the 54% thing has been a little misconstrued because the point of winning 54% of your games over a 10-year stretch is not that you win 54% every single season. It's that inevitably there are going to be some better and worse seasons in that. And when you win more than 54% of your games, you have a pretty good chance of making the World Series and winning it. Sure. Fine. The issue is just when you say that your target is to be slightly above average, that's not a very inspiring thing to say. I, I think there was a better way for Jerry to put out a message. Then. And also, it's the chuckle is the really the, the worst part. But 
But what I'm saying, when the Mariners had, they had a pretty solid roster, right? This was 2018. They came close to making the playoffs. Then they tore everything down, right? Yeah. And they ended up with a bunch of talent back in terms of minor league players, things like that, right? That's where a lot of this generation of Mariners players came from. Yeah. It was from that teardown, which they did a good job at, right? Like Jerry DePoto deserves credit for that tear because he was the GM at the time, right? Yep. Yeah. He deserves credit for that teardown and rebuild after, which did not take that long, all things considered. Definitely did If not. we would have cared about the Mariners then, we could have expected to just now be at the point of like, okay, this team should be competitive by 2024 or whatever. They were competitive ahead of schedule. I think you, probably, you know, it's classically a five-year plan. You probably would have said 2023. This would probably have been the year. But, but now they've had three years in a row of competitive baseball. And even in 2020, they weren't that bad, obviously taking advantage of the shortened season. So they really only had one awful season. The difference is when you have a lot of major league talent, you can use that major league talent to go out and get other major league talent. So having and spending is generally the way that that happens. If you spend on something, you know, I, I don't know exactly who the Mets got for Scherzer at the deadline or whatever, but they're getting interesting prospects back. Spending is still valuable in a lot of different ways. I don't think it has to be like a, a franchise where you sign one player and then all of a sudden you're just like, that's it. We are done. It could be a, a thing where you're spending consistently every single offseason getting major league talent turning that major league talent eventually into other major league talent which the mariners are generally pretty okay at and have done a fairly good job at it so i think except it's, for last offseason it's just some general consistency i guess they did do that i mean that's to me the thing is like everyone's so focused on free agency and i agree with jerry depoto and what zach's argument that like it probably doesn't make sense for the Mariners to target hitters in free agency for all of those reasons. But you can do what they did last offseason where you trade, you know, Eric Swanson from a position of depth for Teoscar Hernandez because Teoscar Hernandez was more expensive going into his last arbitration year. So that's not free agency, but it was leveraging spending to improve the roster. Yeah. So. I mean, it was probably the best move of the entire offseason as well. <laughs> well, uh, well, there wasn't like a lot of competition for that. I mean, they did a nice job finding some guys in the bullpen, I guess, Gabe Spire and Taylor Sacedo, and et cetera, uh, Justin Topa. But uh, certainly with the offensive moves, I don't know what the number two of the offseason move was. So I think Cooper Hummel? Because he just wasn't, <laughs> he, was, he was solid in AAA. I. <laughs> Cooper Hall did, didn't demand roster spot. He didn't have negative war. <laughs> he was there. Uh, but I do think that's one of the bigger issues. But the other piece that about basically free agency is a two-way street. And I think that's a conversation that literally Jerry DePoto can talk about, the front office can talk about, and be like, hey, we are in on all these conversations. Sometimes players need X amount more to come to Seattle, and we are not able to spend that that dollar amount for that player. Or, like, we tried for Trey Turner. He wanted to be in Philadelphia. There are different ways to frame it rather than we're not trying. This is what they have, what they are expressing. Whether it Rather is than we're doing you a favor. Yes. What they are expressing is not competing. And that, again, we've talked about this. That is what the Mariners or the Seahawks are so good at, is saying we are competing in every situation. And the Mariners do the not tell us. That people think that they are, like, 
the only team that actually like anytime you know a free agent gets a veteran gets released or is but on the trade market. But they've done it. That's why people think that people aren't like, oh, the Mariners are going to go sign big name free agent or whatever. People learn over time the habits of a team, and <laughs> and the Mariners' habit is to acquire as many Italian players. As I mean, possible. that's the only good habit the Mariners have. Uh, but th- there are certain things that, like young pitching, right? There are things that kind of continually happen throughout an organization, and over generations, even different, you know, like front office staffs and ownerships, things kind of continually happen. The Mariners, as an organization, are generally pretty good at developing young pitching talent, and. That is something that they have done consistently that clearly they care about doing, but we need to be able to leverage that young pitching talent for MLB hitting at this point. This is the offseason. I hear what if, you're saying. Trade Logan Gilbert for a star hitter. I mean, that's it. But that, if they do that, if there is a star hitter, fans don't care where they came from. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not like... Mm, I think they care a little bit. You can look at the free agent crop, and, and I also think that the shots that you're taking, the like 8 to $15 million shots that are not like what Jerry DePoto is talking about, about setting a franchise back players. Yeah. If you hit on a couple of those, it is a huge deal for that season. And I think the Mariners have been, nobody could have reasonably been like, I think Colton Wong was a fair risk. Yes. But we were on board with it, but nobody could have reasonably said to themselves yet. Yeah, Tommy Listella, that could work out. It would be very hard to find a scenario where that one was going to work out and have him be a competitive major league player. I think there was the a scenario, season. but there's a reason he was at the available at the minimum. Yes, and so if you're if you're taking a bunch of shots in the like eight to fifteen million range, the Mariners should have that money, right? They if it's an, if it's an extra thirty forty five million dollars onto the payroll with what they have right now, it doesn't tie you up for multiple years after. And you could possibly have the shot of one of those players. It's not a huge expense. It's not a long-term deal. If one of those players becomes Cody Bellinger or whatever, all of a sudden you are a much more competitive team. So I think that's the place that the Mariners haven't. It's not, it is at the top. They have not hitting wise. They did sign Robbie Ray and people do. We do forget about the Robbie Ray signing partially because he was done for the year, partially because he wasn't necessarily that good in his post Cy Young season. But like the Mariners did go out those are arguments to spend more money in free agency. Well, I mean, this offseason, he's going to be the big free agent signing. So, no, they, I, I, we did not talk about that last week. But one of the things they did is pour some cold water on how quickly Robbie Ray might be back. Oh, even better. (laughs) They're like, he can't be framed as the big offseason signing from this offseason because he's not coming back. Yes. Oh, Uh, good good news. He might be the trade deadline. There we go. There we go. They're just extending it. Uh, yeah, good news. Ro- Robbie Ray can't be framed as the offseason free agent signing for the Mariners because he's not going to be back. <sighs> uh, anyway, th- those are all the things. It doesn't necessarily, and I think that's to Zach's point of like, if it's Shohei, if it's Trey Turner, if it's Marcus Simeon, those types of players. And you do only remember the hits. You know what I mean? Of course. Like, obviously, those ones seem much more prominent. Availability heuristic. But they haven't done a good job at almost any level of it. I mean, they've done a decent job at some levels of it. It's not like they have the world's worst offense. So No, they don't have the world's worst offense. And and they, they have found players eventually. Like They just I, did a really awful job last offseason. Yes, recently. Like the J.P. Crawford trade, picking up J.P. I think J.P. Crawford's probably... One of the most underrated players in baseball, Julio. 
was great. They got a good season out of Ty France. Uh, you know, like they have done good things. Cal Rally, like the Mariners have done some good things on offense, but they need to do more good things because you need a lot of hitters in baseball because all of a sudden that lineup can get pretty bleak pretty quickly with one injury with seven players also. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of bleak, the start for the Seattle Kraken has been pretty bleak. They got their first point Saturday at St. Louis in their third game, losing a shootout, but then lost their home opener on Tuesday night to the Colorado Avalanche 4-1, have now scored just three goals through four games, the NHL's lowest average thus far. Uh, it's it's really, they've, they've basically, it's basically the gambler's theory where we knew that the Kraken were going to regress to the mean in terms of their shooting percentage that we saw last season which was at historic levels. Instead, they've gone all the way to the other extreme where they are now uh, struggling to convert goals, it's convert their like, shots at historic Honestly, levels. it's kind of like the Mariners, right? A little bit. But, you know, if, if every game basically for the Mariners, it was the Mariners in one-run games and, and extra inning games, but it's everything for the Kraken uh, thus far. So... Uh, they still have not gotten a point this season from Matty Beneers through the first four games. I think he only had one, maybe two stretches of four games without a point last season. And against Colorado, who is 3-0 thus far this season after losing to the Kraken in the first round of last year's playoffs, they like they did the, the things that should lead to goals well. They had 38 shots to 28 for Colorado and just could not put anything home. So... We'll see to what degree that uh, regresses to the main. Uh, they continue this homestand Thursday against Carolina, Saturday against New York. They will do so without Brandon Tanev, who was out four to six weeks with a lower body injury suffered in the season opener at Vegas. Also watching the Kraken got substantially more difficult right before the beginning of their season when Xfinity told customers in an email on the day of the opener, which was not on Root Sports, that they were moving the channel, which also broadcast Blazers games and is majority owned by the Mariners, to their ultimate tier, reducing the price of basic cable subscriptions, but forcing fans to pay $18.50 a month to upgrade to that tier, which also already included Red Zone, NFL Network, NBA TV, MLB TV. Oh, so I already have this? In the past. Because of Red Zone? Yes. Okay. I was like, I feel like I've been watching that. Right. So, to a degree, this, you know, like, if you're a diehard sports fan, this probably shouldn't necessarily affect you, but it's obviously indicative of the ongoing, you know, issue of rights fees for RSNs and, you know, the desire of cable companies to cut costs because of cord cutters and all of that and what, what an issue that's gonna, that has been. I suppose, like, your thing has always been about the Mariners, like how great it is that they own their own broadcast network and own the Kraken rights, and now it's a little like, eh, are we sure that's such a great thing to, to have? But I think broadcast rights are still valuable. It does give you more flexibility if you have your own rights rather than being dependent on a uh, RSN that's owned elsewhere. Because, you know, if for some reason this deal with, you know, uh, Comcast becomes untenable. The Mariners could go the direction that a lot of that we've seen teams in the NBA go this season, where they are now putting games back on local over-the-air TV, old-school style, and then uh, 
streaming them themselves through their websites. The Utah Jazz and Phoenix Suns are doing really? that in the NBA this season. And for free or? No, to pay a subscription. For the stream? Yeah. Do they have an app or anything like that? I the the technical details of this I don't know. Has the NBA so they, there's like a league pass streaming overall, right? But that's out of market. So these are for in market games. Okay. I wonder how how long do you feel like there'll be a differential between those two things, or will it come where a league sells like say the NBA? Is well, we like, already saw it with MLS. MLS that's what yeah. they did with their Apple TV deal. I don't think at the level of you know these the top three or top four leagues that we're likely to see that because of the fact that there are certain markets where those rights are so valuable, like the Lakers deal, you know, we'll see, you know, if that eventually goes away, but like the Lakers make massive amounts off of their local TV deal. They're not going to allow the league to just share that around, you know, equally with the Charlotte Hornets. And if it goes there, then it becomes an equal share. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we'll see what direction that heads in. I mean, like, I think the piece that you're talking about, you said it's the Jazz and who? Suns. And the Suns. So they're on whatever, for us, it's the equivalent of, like, King 5 or something like that. I mean, a little lesser, but it's like back when the Sonics were on Kong. And it's every when, game. When the Mariners were on KSTW. Every single game. I believe so. All non-national games, yeah. I, I do think that there is a value in that for people who are just like a... There are still people out there who don't have like the complete cable package or whatever, who are just like, I just have whatever, you know? And I do think being on those channels makes the games a little bit more accessible to people in your area, where it's like the streaming piece makes them less accessible to random average fan, right? Who's out there. Yeah, that's why I think you want to marry those two options. No, I think it's actually kind of genius because there, there is a marketing piece to it, especially if you're good, right? Which the Suns, at the very least, are. Yeah. If you are a good team. The Jazz are not good, but they are very locally popular still. Having having a very, very easy way for people to watch it. I always compare it to like um, songs on the radio, right? Like people, people have this argument where it's like streaming is the only place that people listen to music. And in reality, if you get a song on the radio, it is the biggest deal in the entire fucking world, Right? Because those songs being on the radio to get just random person. Streaming is still it's semi-passive. But if you can go and just like Jan all of a sudden is aware of your music. <laughs> like that is when you have reached a new level. Because it's streaming is passive. But it's still like an opt-in passive. You right. know what I mean? Like you, you still have to be there and be like I am a person who is going to Spotify and listening to music. Or I like this general type of music. Or, or even something. like... I tend to not listen to a lot of like random curated by other Spotify playlists. So I'm mostly listening to music I already like when I'm on Spotify. So the random discovery, yes, is when I happen to be listening to the radio. Yeah. Or I'm at the pool in Vegas. No, it's it's a huge deal. And I do think it's the same for for the marketing and all of the other pieces. There's still an important value to being locally popular. I guess is what I'm saying. And the local accessibility. You have to be good also. But like if the Mariners were not on, obviously the Mariners are a different situation because they own the network. But if the Mariners were just on network TV, I think they would be that much more popular locally. 
Uh, so on the Blazers aspect of this, Sean Hyken of Rose Garden Report reported that the Blazers' contract with Root Sports runs through 2024-25 with a team option for 2025-26, and notably includes language requiring their games to be available to a certain percentage of households. So we'll see whether this Comcast move uh, changes, uh, whether they meet that criteria. And this was also about Comcast trying to lower the like base value for whatever cable tier. Which I think is part of what this was like the, the Comcast sent the email and they did the, we're doing you a favor because of the fact that they reduced the price Thanks, of Jerry. the basic subscription. <laughs> they saw that press conference and they were like, we're actually doing you a favor by not winning too hard. I feel like that should be our new Just bit. want to let you know. <laughs> we're not going to win too much. We're doing you a favor. We are going to raise ticket prices, though, significantly. The Pelton we're Cash doing should... you a favor. <laughs> the Pelton Cash should incorporate we're doing you a favor <laughs> yeah. is a bit. When we record for an hour and 45 minutes, we're doing you we're a doing favor. We're doing you a favor. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Sounders, who are off an international break. Big win for USMNT on Tuesday night. Oh, yeah. Really handled Ghana. (laughs) Decision day in MLS is coming up. It's Saturday. I thought it was Sunday all along, because that's where they've done it in the past. But apparently they decided not to go up against the NFL this year. Saturday at St. Louis SC. We'll see whether they sample any St. Louis-style pizza on this trip. Uh, as much far, to play as, far for. as we've heard, it would be a very bad thing if they did. <laughs> much to play for against the St. Louis City squad that has clinched the top spot in the Western Conference, but could still affect home field advantage if St. Louis hosts the MLS Cup against certain East opponents. This is the first trip to STL for the Sounders. A win would guarantee the Sounders a top three seed, give them a chance to move up to second if LAFC does not win at Vancouver. A draw would guarantee the Sounders a top four seed in home field in the first round. They would finish third if Houston does not win at Portland and drop to fourth otherwise. And a loss would leave the Sounders dependent on other results to stay in the top four. Houston would jump them with a win. Salt Lake could catch them and win the tiebreaker with a win at Colorado. Is would Vancouver with a win over LAFC. But draws or losses for any of those teams would leave them behind the Sounders. I don't think anybody was following that. <laughs> it's, it's, Look, we're doing you a favor. <laughs> It's it's very complicated in soccer because like in basketball by reading know, out this complicated list of random cities we're doing you a favor here. <laughs> normally normally you could just look at the two possible outcomes but since you've got 3 in in soccer it increases the number of permutations exponentially. But we do need to talk about the bunkers MLS playoff format where MLS was like we're doing you a favor. We're doing, yeah, that's a good, yeah, this is a good bit actually. So there's a play in between the eight and nine seeds. Okay. Then you've got the eight teams in each conference. Totally checks out. All all fairly normal so far. Yeah. You know, very NBA style. The top four seeds host a best of three series. Oh, love it. Over a two-week span. Those happen in soccer often throughout the world. With games drawn after 90 minutes going immediately to PKs. It's a home-away home format with the higher seed hosting the deciding game three is nece- if necessary. I... I it's whatever. And then after that, then it's back to single elimination knockout the rest of the way. <laughs> the first round is three games. The The championship is one game. That is, <laughs> that is like never made any sense to me. That's actually like a classic MLS thing, though. Isn't that? I mean, that's generally throughout, right? Like Champions League, you have the home and home. They do have, yes, the aggregate and then you the just, Having multiple games to determine a championship, one game should determine a championship. That's the one thing that the NBA has wrong. Because you're basically devaluing your own product. 
or or you're saying I want to spread the value throughout. But like any individual it's the NBA build up finals of the game, tension. You're telling me that soccer needs more build up of tension. No, I'm saying the most that it makes built up sport there well, is. That's fair. Aside from Huskies versus Oregon last Saturday. <laughs> It does not need Soccer's three got a games. Problem. Three games between the one seed and the eight seed, and then one game for the final. No, it's pretty wild. I do just. I just. I'm so fascinated where they come up with stuff, and that that it's like a new format, just constantly. I think this does harken back. Yes, they're constantly changing formats. I think they did something like this in the early days of MLS pre Sounders. So. We barely know it existed. I, I also just like, we should probably be hearkening back to those days, right? They were great. <laughs> Do you feel like there's a chance that MLS is like, ah, the messy thing has been huge? Yeah. That they're like, maybe the market share is fading. Maybe soccer lost. To what? The hippies were wrong. Maybe soccer lost. Wow. Maybe soccer is not that popular of a sport in the United States anymore. I think soccer is a very popular sport in the United States. Whether the MLS... Or the, I guess, yes. Whether MLS is a popular well, sport is a honestly, different question. What the MLS should be doing is trying to limit availability of foreign soccer games. They just should... Or, they should be going out of their way to block people from being able to watch British soccer and Spanish. Because when you know that's out there and then you have to watch this, it's not like, like college where like college is just like amateur NFL and it's just like, actually, that's still great. But they don't compete head-to-head against each other. That's still the point. Yes, that they're in the same league. This is like, I mean, the fucking, I watched the very, very beginning of um, the Welcome to Regsum. Regsum documentary, right? And they're like, it's here, it's here. And then you've got people who are just like, you know, working jobs, just happy to be a professional soccer player. Yep. That's the MLS. That is the MLS version of international soccer because there are so many great leagues throughout the world that people know and care about and have history with. They're not like, well, I think this was the format before our team existed. They're like, this team has existed for 100 years and is a fixture of our community. Not, we now have a team in... St. Louis. St. Louis. <laughs> That's, is that the most recent MLS team? It is, yes. The, the newest MLS team. <laughs> They're so like, we really struck out by not getting Sacramento in. <laughs> it looked like a slam dunk. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> All right, OL Rain. Or you're, you're against the idea of promotion and relegation. I am, yes. You just re- it's so weird that you could be pro-bowls and anti-promotion and relegation. Oh, they're... They're opposed because one provides a happy outcome for a lot of teams and one provides a dreadful outcome for teams. Talk about tension building up. I mean, I suppose. Throughout an entire season, you could just be in a whole different league. I actually think we need more promotion and relegation. It destroys, like, it actually upends lives. Like, when you watch the, you have, have you watched Welcome to Sunderland? Uh-uh. Or not Welcome to Sunderland. Uh, We're doing Welcome to More Things now? Well, no, it's the same people who did Welcome to Wrexham. So okay. after I watched the first season of Welcome to Wrexham, I watched the... It's Sunderland Till I Die is the name of the okay. documentary series. And it's, like, amazing. But it's, like, the guy in the cafeteria is getting fired because the team got relegated. I don't... No. I mean, I'm sure that that is literally the case, but I do not know if that needs to be the case. You were probably talking about it. It's I'd, too big of a monetary difference. That they can't have a fucking cafeteria. It's like, do you know how much money the difference is between being in the Premier League and the Championship? At the same, but it and all then they went down to evens out. 
if a team is promoted just because you're not watching the documentary about them, the other team is hiring somebody for their cafeteria. Yeah, I don't think it's a zero-sum thing, though. You think it's just people are fired from cafeterias and no one is hired? No, I'm saying that it's much worse to be get fired from your job because of the something you have no control over to the, get, than to get hired to a new job because of something you could, because there's no stability in those two things as opposed to one person just continuing to work the same job. <laughs> I like the idea of promotion and relegation is boiled down to one person being fired from a cafeteria. <laughs> That's what it's boiled down to. Uh, but the money is ultimately generally the same. I mean, yes, the amount in the system is the same. Spread throughout. But the reality is because of promotion and relegation, all of those people have to spend more to try to stay there, which is more important for the 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 workforce, right? Like if we're talking about it from that that perspective, I suppose ha- having a strong work- workforce is how you end up not being relegated. So you would spend more in every single aspect that you're doing with the goal of and the intent of staying up. If you're a French team, is it that also, not right? It also at, at the mean, same I, time we don't can, have time can, to fucking discuss re- relegation and hey, promotion on this podcast. We're doing you a favor. <laughs> By discussing promotion, but the other issue with it is that it forces teams to hire like the eighty-year-old English manager who sits there in a fucking tracksuit on the sideline and never plays any of the young players and tries to ground out a nil-nil draw, as opposed to like actually developing young talent in you on a tanking those team. Smaller programs develop the young talent and then buy them. Anyway, OL Rain, after going to the locker room scoreless on Sunday's NWSL decision day, the rain exploded for three goals in the second half with Megan Rapino scoring a brace in her final regular season game to end her NWSL regular season career with 51 goals. Fellow OG Jess Fishlock netted the other in a 3-0 win to push the rain up to fourth in the standings thanks to Gotham City FC drawing with Kansas City elsewhere. That means the rain will host Angel City FC on Friday night in the opening round of the NWSL playoffs, putting their streak of nine consecutive knockout losses on the line. The good news is, unlike last year's home loss to the current in the the NWSL playoffs or their loss to Racing Louisville in the NWSL Challenge Cup, this is not a semifinal, which they have lost eight consecutive of. Okay. Because the NWSL playoffs expanded to six teams, making this the quarterfinals with the top two teams. Uh, Portland and the arch rival, the hated San Diego Wave, getting a bye directly to the semifinals. Angel City made a late charge up the NWSL standings, including their first ever win over the rain on August 27th at Lumen Field, going 4-1-1 over their last six games, capped by a 5-1 win Sunday over the Thorns to claim the fifth seed and reach the playoff for the first time in their second season as an expansion team. Uh, Angel City finished tied for second in the NBSL with 31 goals, but allowed 35th most. Rain allowed just 24, tied for fourth fewest. It's a balanced offensive attack for Angel City with six different players scoring at least three goals. But again, the big story here, Megan Rapino getting at least one more time playing Absolutely. in front of the home fans. You'll love to see it. All right, some quick notes on bas- Utah basketball. Hello. Uh, last week was Pac-12 Media Days for the men and the women. The Utah women were picked ninth by coaches and 10th by media, flipping places with Oregon State in the two polls. It's a testament to the depth of the conference, which sent seven teams to the NCAA tournament last year, had six teams in my ESPN colleagues, Charlie Cream's preseason top 25. Utah returned six of the top eight players in points and minutes per game from last year's team that reached the WNIT championship game, having lost seniors Haley Van Dyke and Trinity Oliver. 
The UW men were picked in ninth by media ahead of Washington State, Cal, and Oregon State. Ken Palm projections are out and are a bit more optimistic, putting the Huskies 78th overall and 8th in the Pac-12, projected for a 9-11 and conference record. Do we feel like the team? I thought we were kind of optimistic on the team. I'm kind of optimistic on the team. Yeah. Of, of them finishing better than this? I feel like... I mean, the Pac-12 was actually pretty good this year at basketball, it seems like, too. What happened? I don't know. It's like a death spasm. Uh, is that death spasm? Is that their term? I, something like something good happens right before it dies. <clears throat> I, I is there like, like a pre-death clarity or something? <laughs> uh, I guess that's not what the term means at all. Well, what yeah. death spasm sounded pretty sinister. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> didn't look great. Like <laughs> we're doing you a favor by looking up death spasm. Anyway. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know almost no of these na- none of these names aside from you talking about them. So I feel like we couldn't have that great of a grasp of how good the team is. I mean, the fact that there's so many new pieces probably makes them a little more difficult to predict. But we'll see. Like a, the 78th best team can make the NCAA tournament. That's for sure. Okay. I, I'm probably interested in this Husky basketball season. <laughs> I'm interested in this Husky basketball season, question mark. All right, let's talk about the Seahawks, who suffered a 17-13 loss Sunday at Cincinnati in about the most frustrating fashion, I would say, possible. Like, repeatedly driving into the red zone in the fourth quarter for the potential go-ahead touchdown, only to be unable to score. There are 10 points on five trips to the red zone on Sunday, the second fewest points per trip for any team with at least five this season, behind only the game played on Sunday night last week, the New York Giants against Buffalo, when they had nine points in five trips to the red zone. Over the course of the season, the Seahawks' 3.88 points per trip in the red zone are the fourth lowest in the NFL. Yeah, it's tough to say how much of this is talent, play-calling, randomness i mean you know we're still talking about a relatively small sample size i mean start with randomness first rule out randomness that's my law not what do you mean first rule out randomness like start by assuming something's random and if you can rule that out then do that but don't start by looking for a reason we we obviously can't rule out randomness here exactly but that's that's not a fun conversation to have so there are reasons whether randomness is the most likely reason. There are sub reasons for something happening. I think they're running the ball with when you get the ball. We've seen this forever. I don't know if this is statistically backed or whatever. It didn't didn't bear out as much as I th- hoped it would when I researched it. But we're talking about the ball at like the 10. And I feel like that's where the Seahawks ended up a lot in this game. They did. was on the cusp of the goal line, not the red zone, the cusp of the goal line. End goal, some number end goal, and it wasn't quite at the one or the two or whatever. It was fun, funny that we saw it the day before with the Huskies not scoring on four plays from the goal line as well. And it kind of felt like just, what the hell? Why can't we figure this out? But some of the carries, I do think there's a little bit of like, these were all, as far as I remember, Ken Walker carries there. There was not a Charbonnet, Charbonnet carry near the goal line. Um and it, it's just kind of not what Ken Walker does particularly well, even though he does have a couple of goal line touchdowns. Those have he has been, a lot of touchdowns this season. <laughs> but those, I think those were generally from closer. They, they weren't like eight-yard runs or something like that, how they got there. Uh, 
I think Gino kind of just had a bad game overall, but also the play calling just looked, it, it was uninspiring. It was an uneven game for sure for Gino. Uh, they kicked a field goal on first and goal from the five. Hopefully not on first and goal from the five. Well, they, after starting. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, would be, I would have uh, taken it at points in the game. That, that would have been a real mistake. I, I concede that in information when Gino got in, intercepted it was first and they started out first and oh, goal from the four so frustrating both of those were Ken Walker the third run one yard runs on first down the two plays that uh, they turned the ball over on downs first and goal with the seven on the first one and then first and it was it was never first and goal because it was first and 10 at the 11 they did they have the opportunity the on the down. final drive okay so they, they were actually a little bit closer than I thought but you look at those Ken Walker runs if you're kind of telegraphing run there and it's uh, first and goal from the four, flat, the five or whatever. Ken Walker picks up a yard. It doesn't put you any closer to a touchdown. Yep. And it doesn't open up the playbook anymore, right? Aside from that is the play when the Seahawks should be going play action or rolling Geno out. The play, after watching this, I was watching the Cowboys and the Chargers, and not to take anything positive from the Chargers play calling necessarily, but by the time they got to a— Whoa, whoa easy there. Uh, was, Herbert was bad. Were that annotate Kellen Moore? I think Kellen Moore is fine. When Herbert was slinging it at the end, I was like, Hell "We've yeah, seen the Cowboys hurt. offense without Kellen Moore." No, it's all bad. It's bad for everybody. But I was. Let actually, me tell you. Let me tell you. The people of the internet. So, by the way, uh, Nate Tice of the Athletic Football Shadow pointed out that teams are scoring touchdowns on fifty-three percent of their red zone drives, the lowest rate through Week Six since two thousand eleven, and. Everyone who replies to him thinks, not everyone, but that it's because teams don't run the ball enough anymore. This is the oh. running backs don't matter era. Team, teams are running the ball. They run the ball way too fucking much. Uh, I, I don't, look, I think the Seahawks in general, their play calling has been pretty good. Oh it yeah, just, between the 20s, like, they've been awesome. Those series, when they get there, it's an interesting place that they're still, they're very bad at using tight ends near the goal line, right? There's the touchdown to Bobo a couple weeks ago, but like they haven't really used tight ends. They haven't really figured out how to unlock DK Metcalf there necessarily. The plays that work are... are still trying to figure out how to get the ball to Jimmy Graham? No, it's... <laughs> they kept circling in the broadcast. It was like DK Metcalf one-on-one, and the, like they tried it a couple times, but maybe not enough. That to me was a like, maybe let's just try this a few times. Right. Uh, but... And the pass protection, certainly on that final drive, was a factor as well. There, there were a lot of factors, but the play that the Chargers ran, it was a touchdown. I think it was to Keenan Allen, wide open, right? Herbert rolls out. Keenan Allen is running into space. Herbert throws it in front of him. Easy touchdown. I believe that was it, a, from the two, right? And it was, on, it was on a fourth down that they scored that. And it was like, that is the kind of play you have to use the field lengthwise at the goal line. Like, you right. have to use because the entire you, field. you can't go width-wise because you can't width, go but like, you know, down the field. That has to be the way that it happens. It's easier to defend, but you have to get people think you're going one way and then go another way or even have a player going another way. I know it's easier said than done, but like the Seahawks didn't really try too many of those types of plays in this game where yeah. they got, and I, I understand the offensive line being injured, not having the, the, the usual group or the group that they're expecting to have. But it felt to me like that was the play that they were missing in this game. Uh, and then I got to the point where on the last drive, I fully expected them not to score. There yes. was no doubt in my mind that they weren't going to score in that game or on that drive. It was like, I would love if they did, but I just do not see it. Um, the 
the running from the like 11 or whatever. It's like, this isn't working. Gino not having time. Gino honestly having a pretty pretty questionable game in a lot of places, especially decision-making wise. I think it was definitely a very uneven game. People because there were great moments. <clears throat> were there great moments that Gino For had? sure. There, there was a ball to lock it that like was perfect. I, I think Gino's throws generally were pretty good. There were huge mistakes. Obviously, the, yeah. D, the DK pick... Um, the first pick wasn't great either. Having two picks in a game is is like Pete Carroll must have been furious about that, right? But then the ball that he missed, where literally we're watching it, and you could see in the line of vision before the replay, Jackson Smith and Jigba being wide open for a touchdown. It's like if you miss it, you miss it, and it felt like Gino. I don't know if he was gun shy or whatever, or if he just didn't see it. Like how they ended up not throwing that ball. It also, I, I appreciated the way that they used Jackson Smith and Jigba in this game. Oh, and that great. he was in that route at that time. And who knows, maybe there's not the comfort with him as a receiver or whatever that Gino has, but I was shocked that he didn't let that one fly. I think it's mostly just that shit happens because there's like a bunch of guys trying to tackle you. They're really large. Trying to tackle you, yes. But th that was the type of play that you don't see missed in the NFL by a quarterback like Gino Smith very often. QBR was pretty bad. I mean, obviously you get, you know, two interceptions, four sacks. It's a tough day at the office. I, I think the important takeaway here is, the Seahawks were much better on a yards per play basis. The third downs actually kind of evened out. They rest of the mean in that regard. There was one third down where they they'd given DK like six. It was like a that was a perplexing third and seven, yeah, the, and they gave him like the nine yards. Played off. And you're just like, yeah, sure. And when they threw, it was like one of those plays where you're screaming at the TV, where you're like, throw it to DK here. And then they just threw it to DK, and you're like, easy. Yeah. The foot, football should always be this easy. The defense was pretty damn good against Cincinnati, especially after the last two drives. After the first two drives. Uh, yes, yes, after the first two drives. Uh, Joe Burrow, at that point, I believe, had completed 10 consecutive passes, was 10 of 12. To start this, oh, after the first two drives, he was 15 of 27 for 110 yards. And no, it was wild. Like he missed some throws, but also like this was the first time the Seahawks have had the full complement on defense, other than I guess the first seven plays against the Giants. And we started to see like you know for all the Jamal Adams disbelievers out there, he played a terrific game. Devin Witherspoon playing a lot of time again in the slot, playing both in the slot and outside. Trey Brown. Monster game. An awesome game. The best game of Trey Brown's career. I mean, the two question. plays that he made where they got the OPI, which was shocking that they called it. I was just waiting for them to say pass interference defense because they just do not. Yes. Go. The confidence in the Seahawks. Nobody was nervous on like. I on was the like, okay, the Seahawks know that this is an OPI, I think. I still. But, but it was still just shocking that they called it an OPI. But then Trey Brown breaking up the pass with the penalty. Oh. Like that, the pick that he had was beautiful. It was an incredible game. I mean, Trey obviously. Brown. I missed the first two drives because I was at Mateo's football game. <laughs> so you, as far as you're concerned, the Seahawks defense is just amazing. I got home at halftime. I, I mean, I was like watching on my phone and I was like, oh, fuck. Burrow's roasting us. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I guess the defense isn't good. But I got home at halftime. And from basically that point forward, it was the defense was dominant every single second. Like Devin Witherspoon didn't have the one huge play, but was in so many plays. Hits hard. He's the type of player that defenses are accounting for now. And his his whole like energy on the field is a difference. But adding Jamal Adams to that as well 
and the way that Trey Brown was playing, plus a little bit of pass rush, Trey Jones getting into the mix. Like, I think this, I love the way that Jaron Reed has been playing as well this year. Yeah. Like, I think this defense well, has a few, legitimate chance. Few less offsides than we saw on, on Sunday would be nice. Uh, the thing that the thought that occurred to me on Sunday about Devin Witherspoon is like the Rams made a big deal about Jalen Ramsey playing the star position where he was going to be close to the ball. And like that's basically what Devin Witherspoon is doing right now. You're close to the ball if you get yourself close to the ball, also. Some players are close to the ball. But playing in the slot, I do think, is the ideal use of his skill set. Like, obviously, you want him to be able to play on the outside in situations where you were in a base defense. But I think this should be his permanent role. I mean, Kobe Bryant and Artie Barnes presumably are coming back at some point, but they should not change this. Trey Brown needs to be on the field. The way that he's playing. Absolutely. I thought Reek also, like, you didn't even see him that much, but he made a handful of plays where you're just like, damn, okay. There, there was one other thought I had during during the game on Sunday, which is, like, the whole, this this happened after we recorded last week, certainly. The whole, like, you know, DK saying that Devin Witherspoon's going to lock up uh, Jamar Chase. Like, number one, A, he probably wasn't good. Number one, he probably wasn't going to do that. But number two, like, DK, you've seen the Seahawks defense before, right? Like, they don't match corners to wide receivers you're you're aware of that right so it was gonna be a lot of different people on jamar chase Chase. and it was which they did after the first few drives they were awesome i mean there's it's it was so frustrating that the seahawks lost this game because you just feel that like the entire time it was right they, there for them to they win. They were the better team. And this was to go 4-1. and one. We didn't know that the Niners were going to lose as well. But they were the better team. And this is not like... There's a difference between being the better team against the Cardinals or whatever. This is a team that was in the Super Bowl two years ago. Yeah. Like, this is not a bad Bengals team. Even for how they've been playing so far this year, it is an extraordinarily talented Bengals team, especially on offense. And for the Seahawks to have done that, you look at where the Lions are at. Like, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't mean to rationalize, oh, but I, like, I, I promised we were going to rationalize on this podcast. Here's what I'm not going to rationalize though: is every single win matters in the NFL for sure. And that I'm is not saying the, that it doesn't matter, but it's, it's the question of the long-term outlook. The long-term outlook is still very good for the Seahawks. I think defensively, maybe even more so than offensively, right? Like you look at the pieces that are in place defensively. I, let's remain calm. They're still eighth in offensive DVOA and 16th on def- in defensive DVOA. Or excuse me, right ninth there, and 16th. We, we would take, but like the oh, defense for sure. is getting better. So, I wouldn't be, this might be pie in the sky. I wouldn't be shocked if we get to like week 12 and people look around and are like, oh shit, the Seahawks team is a legit Super Bowl contender. All of a sudden, they're winning games by 30 points. Like, oh, I, I wouldn't be shocked points. if things clicked into place. Uh, what What is the year? 2012 12? 12 style? Not, that's Super Bowl year, right? No, 2012 was the first year that Russell wasn't No, I'm talking about 2000. 15 Thomas, Thomas Rawls 14 or 15 Thomas Rawls yeah when I guess, they secretly were the best team in the NFL and things clicked into place yeah, that was 2015 when Russell Wilson had the best stretch of his career in the second half of that season I don't I don't know I see that coming I think it's but, but I think they but I think it's more like 2012 wise I think they're better than that I don't know the offense was really fucking good back then and I, I do think there's a ceiling on the offense with Geno Smith at quarterback I think that ceiling is still quite high, and people are getting a little too down on Geno Smith right now in the wake of this game. He didn't even necessarily play a bad—Geno will be back. Geno will be good. 
especially in the context of like, look around. We see what it looks like when you have really terrible quarterback play. And when it when the rest of the team is held back by that position. The rest of the team is not being held back by that position. Absolutely not. So No, I think Gino Gino ultimately had a fine game and made some really bad mistakes. And that's that is okay. That has not happened to him that many times as uh starting quarterback of the Seahawks the last two years. So it was frustrating. But what I'm saying is there was something there for the taking for the Seahawks to I agree. both have the same record as the Niners. You just can't you can't lose games. Especially games like this. You're going to lose in the NFL. But I think we will look back at this game in ten weeks or something and be like, fuck if we just won that game. Yeah. Whether it's making the playoffs, whether it's seeding in the playoffs, whether it's the division or something like that. I, I am less convinced obviously they both just lost. I was less convinced about the Niners and the Eagles. Well, the Niners looked pretty freaking good last week. Uh, I think there is the top tier of the NFC. Seeing the Cowboys be basically needing some luck against the Chargers to win that game. And I know it was the road, but ultimately it was like that was a home game for them. It's like the Cowboys are kind of a middle-of-the-road NFL team. And I think the Lions are probably the third best team in the NFC. We've already beaten the Lions on the road. So... The Seahawks have to be in that conversation. If they hadn't blown this game, they would be in the position that the Lions are in right now, and people would be like, don't look now. That's when the, the don't look now would have come this week if the Seahawks hadn't blown such a stupid game. As I recall correctly, if I recall correctly, the don't look now didn't work out so well, but we were doing you a favor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Arizona Cardinals who are coming to town on Sunday. Am I right about that, that last diatribe? That... Winning games matters, or that they would that they would be a trendy team if they had won both. Yes, great. Arizona comes Thanks in for the positive affirmation. <laughs> You're good enough. I, I needed that. <laughs> I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> the Arizona Cardinals come in 25th in DVOA. You out there, the listener, are totally right about whatever you're thinking too. Whatever whether you, it's, whatever whether it's the exact about, opposite is what we are saying. Whatever you think about St. Louis style pizza. Whatever you think about Jerry DePoto. Uh, 25th in Eating DVOA. that pizza might be doing you a favor. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I ate the Costco burger, so you don't have to. 12th in offense. 31st in defense. the Costco burger. 12th in special teams. I hope it burns it now. <laughs> Low expectations for the Cardinals with Kyler Murray injured and DeAndre Hopkins traded in the offseason. The offense has actually been pretty good with Josh Dobbs at quarterback. They started a competitive 1-2 one with two one-score losses where the team led much of the way and a 28-16 win over those aforementioned Cowboys. But since then, the Cardinals have lost three in a row by an average of 16.7 points, and they might be who we thought they were. All right, no, Pete they're, Denny not, Green. they're not who we thought they were. They're not the worst team in the NFL. They might be bad. There's a chance. I mean, yeah, we thought they were like by far number 32. People were talking about them tanking, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Dobbs has completed 63% of his passes, albeit for just 6.2 yards per attempt with a middling 49 QBR. He's 27th in the EPA plus CPOE composite. Dobbs is largely taking care of the ball with just three interceptions and does add a rushing threat. Uh, Marquise Hollywood-Brown has been the top receiving threat, averaging a career-low 6.3 yards per target and catching a career-low 55% of targets. Dobbs has also relied heavily on Zach Ertz, who's averaging just 7.0 yards per reception. 
Rondell Moore at 7.4 yards per reception. Also not getting much bang for his catch buck. The more dangerous Cardinals threats have been rookie receiver Michael Wilson, who's averaging 17.6 wow, yards per reception okay. and catching 82% of his targets. And second-year tight end Trey McBride averaging 9.4 yards per target. How many how many receptions is that for Michael Wilson, though? It must be very low. Uh, it's around 20, I think. You enough that I added him to my fantasy team a couple weeks ago. Did you? Just in time for him to regress to the uh-huh. uh the Cardinals ranked number nine in rushing EPA per play. Uh James Connor was shockingly effective, averaging a career high of five point four yards per carry before he went on an IR with a knee injury suffered in their loss to Cincinnati. Without him, the Cardinals used Keontae Ingram, Damian Williams, and Amari DeMarcado in last Sunday's loss to the Rams, where they combined for a solid eighty seven yards on twenty carries. Uh the Arizona defense has been bad. It's been treaded for at least 380 yards in every game since the opening loss at Washington. They're a 29th in EPA per play on dropbacks, 24th defending runs. Buda Baker went on IR after the season opener, although he may return to practice this week. Uh, also, uh, new head coach Jonathan Gannon wouldn't rule out Kyler Murray returning to practice this week, but it seems inconceivable the Cardinals would rush his recovery from an ACL tear. Cardinals allowing opponents to complete 71% of passes for 8.0 yards per attempt, third highest in NFL. They are above average in terms of sack rate without a single dominant edge rusher. Five different Arizona players have at least two sacks. The Michael Wilson season is so strange. I mean, he does have, like, his yards per reception are pretty monster, yeah. right? Like, three receptions, 62 yards against the Rams. But then you have all of these other players at, like, 7.6 yards per reception. Or I mean, the Cardinals have done that for a while, like, I don't know if it's Rondell more specifically, but, like, they're tight ends for a long period of time. Like, lots of targets and very few yards. It, it's just, like... Although we thought we got rid of that with Cliff Kingsbury getting fired. Yeah, no, it just continues. Uh, uh, people were so hyped on Jonathan Gannon after that Cowboys win as well, where they were like, maybe we were wrong about Jonathan Gannon. Maybe he is amazing, or whatever. And it's just I like, mean... It's too early to say. But also, he's, he's the coach of the Cardinals with Josh Dobbs as his quarterback in that awful defense. You know, like, I wouldn't necessarily hold anything as both a pro or negative about Jonathan Gannon. But, the... Did, you know, whether you get on the bus or you get off the... Or you, whether you <laughs> got here on the bus or drove, we did you a favor. <laughs> the, I don't know if I landed that plane. The reality is... Having an offense like that is not an effective NFL offense, and it, it might be, it might be influenced more by having a quarterback like Josh Dobbs, who's not going to be able to get the ball downfield that effectively over time. Right. But yards per reception to me is probably the most important thing to look at for a quarterback and an offense overall, and to know whether they're a successful one. And right now, that's something that the Cardinals are not doing. It also is not the kind of offense that the Seahawks have not been able to handle. Oh. Like, I mean, they'll get some first downs. I, I'm not concerned about that. But, like, this is not a... Especially their ability to tackle at this point. Yeah, all of a sudden, wow, the Seahawks' ability to tackle? Am I right here? Am I, I hearing this. this correctly? I don't know if you're aware of this. They used to have a very effective tackling defense. I know, but we went through all of last season with that Seahawks' defense. And now all of a sudden they can tackle? Everything was worth it because it all led to drafting Devin Withers. <laughs> Also, Russell Wilson is uh, that is not great. I not great. I just can't. It's almost hard to process just how bad. And like, I think Sean Payton might be intentionally tanking Russell Wilson's career at this point. Like, it's just getting worse. But 
I, I will still believe in Russell Wilson is like Jared Kalanick to me, which is hilarious <laughs> that he is a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And I'm like, what a comparison. I, I will still believe in him after everybody else does, uh, doesn't believe in him anymore. But I'm like, Russell Wilson will have, he, he will have a renaissance season somewhere. I don't think it's going to be in Denver, but he's going to have a renaissance season somewhere along the line at a lot less money than he's making right now. Uh, The Cardinals. The Cardinals. I was like, <laughs> and I was talking about something. <laughs> I think it had to do with, I blacked out and said Jared Kellenick. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Uh, but no, Jared, Jared Kellenick is going to be an all-star next year. Oh, it's not time for M's hot takes. That's not even a hot take. That's just a neutral, did average perspective. Zach Jabal didn't email it to us. <sighs> Chances of victory in this one? I think they're very high. Considering this the Seahawks defense, uh, I think Geno is about to have a real bounce back game against the Cardinals offense, partially just because he kind of has to after last week's performance. And also, like, they know. They know what happened. They're going to be scoring touchdowns, and the crowd's going to be very relieved when they score those touchdowns. I, th- I think they win this game comfortably. I think it's like a 20-point victory. It's like an 85% chance of victory. I'm also going to say 85%. I don't know that that necessarily translates to a 20-point victory, although, again... Average margin of 16.7 points in the Cardinals' last three losses. All right, let's wrap up with the Washington Huskies. Uh, coming off of their 36-33 win over arch-rival Oregon, they've moved up to number five in both the AP and coaches poll at undefeated 6-0. We learned a little more. This we didn't know on Saturday night when we recorded the degree to which Michael Penix Jr. was dealing with cramping in the fourth quarter. Uh, one of the things that Ryan Grubb mentioned is that's why they didn't call for a sneak. I was kind of wondering about that. Their, I, I was like, he's, he's kind of skinny. I mean, they've done it with him before. I thought it was partially because of the fact that he got hit hard on that drive, although Grubb said that that, that actually wasn't that, that serious of a hit. Uh, Jalen McMillan played just seven snaps before his quote knee gave out a little bit according to Grubb well Jeremy Bernard I didn't realize he played any snaps at all he wasn't targeted so unless we were like specifically paying attention you wouldn't realize that I, I think it was on the second drive where you were like hey where's Jalen McMillan and we saw him on the sidelines with his helmet without his helmet making it clear that uh, he had re-aggravated the injury uh, Jeremy Bernard left after suffering an apparent leg injury on a kickoff return well we we all saw that one real time yes and came back with his foot heavily bandaged. McMillan was scheduled to see the doctor on Monday, but we haven't gotten an update yet. With those two injuries, even before the Bernard injury, Charles uh, Jackson played the second most snaps of his UW career, according to Christian Capel. And he was awesome. He was. Yeah, had a huge fourth down catch, had a touchdown catch. Big day for Charles Jackson, but you would like to see a little more uh, rotation at the receiver position this week. <sighs> As the Huskies go up against Arizona State. We're not talking about Arizona State yet. Oh, okay. I just really want to bask in this victory for a second. Yeah. I just, every once in a while, I'll be did like... Did you watch the recap video? They oh, did? did I watch the recap video? <laughs> it was one of those things where you just watch it and you're like, this is a moment. No matter what happens for the rest of the year. I kept pausing it to see if we could see ourselves in oh, the yeah, stands. I, I was looking a lot. I think we could see the, the, the folks next to us. Really? Oh, yeah. They're very tall. Yeah. And also just like the way the camera was, it happened to be a little bit too On our, which which play? All right. Well, like just when they're showing it after the game or after the after the touchdown when 
there's a shot of Odunze celebrating that shows the East End Zone. It was so freaking nuts down there. Like, I just, that moment of, I honestly, it is unlike anything else. I think this may have been the best sporting event I've ever been to in my entire life. Or the most the fun best, sporting event. Wow. I think it might have been the most I mean, fun sporting event. So I think in, like, like my friend Kevin Jackson, who my former ESPN colleague now at Fox Sports, who has been attending you know, games for a while and said that it was number one among the games that he's, he's attended. Uh, you know, Christian Cable sort of in his recap on at on Montlake sort of reiterated what I said in terms of this ticking all these different boxes, yeah, more boxes than any win. But, but ahead of the 2013 NFC Championship or the 2014 NFC those, Championship those game. very fun. The... 13 kind of like it was a good game but ultimately i would ask you to consult the emergency pod recorded in the wake no, of that it was game obviously amazing but like the, i looking down there is an atmosphere at a husky stadium that is different and i think that's why it was maybe more fun <laughs> because being there like football nfl games are a different feeling than a college game you're like we are all in this together there was such a camaraderie that happened with the people and i just after we scored the touchdown the the touchdown to go up right to odunze seeing the east end zone as like people having their arms around each other and you can see it moving right that seeing like the, just the vibrations of humanity. You're saying the fact that the stadium is constructed worse. <laughs> but you're closer together. We're on those bench seats. I love our fucking seats, how close we are. At a Seahawks game, I'm way up high looking down. Like we're all celebrating having an amazing time or whatever, but you can't quite be as close to each other. And you can't quite have the same thing. You don't have. Five people in three seats. I mean, that that's part of it, right? Like, we're packed in. Just everybody is right there on top of each other. But I, So I was looking down, and it is just like fucking pandemonium. I mean, it was. In front of us. And that is unlike anything that I have ever seen. And I was looking, and I was like, this is wild how into this moment everybody is. And I was there, too. You're putting it ahead of game five in 95? I think that was I don't I was fucking ten I don't know. Fair. I think that was probably the closest. Maybe is just like such a collective group of people all together. Like there's something about it being the NFC Championship game that almost like brings in more casual fans hmm. to a certain extent. I don't know. It was a great. I'm not. I, the, that's that's the tier that we were talking about. Yeah. But I do not remember a moment looking around the stadium and just when he missed the field goal, like I keep trying to like, you know, like there's like a Black Mirror episode where you can like rewind your life and rewatch it. And like, I feel like I, I remember seeing it sail to the right or whatever. And it's just an eruption. It's not like I can't even like picture the moment anymore. And it was like three days ago. You know what I mean? It was, it, I, it's, can, I can picture it. I'm. I'm. We that, that field goal was so close. <laughs> it it is one of those things where you're just like that. Just like I feel, I didn't black out, but like all of a sudden he missed it. Like we saw him miss it, and everybody erupting all at once is it is kind of unlike anything that I have ever experienced. I mean, the tip again is the only thing that could be close to it. I suppose the double, and it is one of those three moments. I. I don't know. It was just 
it was so much fun and watching the like the video after and the people just instantly storming the field <laughs> you know what i mean like just seeing the crowd like get it and move around it, it was it was unlike any experience that you can have in even your entire I, life even i can't hate on that field storming no just the 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 perfect group of like people being there and all caring so much on that last drive how loud it was you know what i mean like it was i i guess maybe the thing that made it so much better was how uncharacteristic it was of husky football to a certain extent and maybe for seahawks games like of course it was loud at the nfc championship game yeah of course the crowd is good we'd been we'd been a good crowd from a multiple years in a row or something but this was, it was like, also the self already the self-congratulatory 12th man thing by yeah point. this was something i mean look the husky fans are self-congratulatory as well I'm, I'm not saying they're not but there's no self-congratulatory they're self-congratulatory about how pretty the stadium is <laughs> yeah and you could be in a boat and near it <laughs> both at the same time near a stadium in a boat whoa <laughs> Nobody's in the stadium. Okay, but here's the point that I wanted to make to you. Because I really, I, I thought long and hard about this. Most of them were out getting beer at halftime. Was why this is the most important victory. And the, uh, the most fun victory, the most important victory in a long time. Also, do you see the, the clip of Chris Peterson celebrating? I did. Oh, so good. It was just like one of those things. It was like when Dame hit the three against the Thunder, and you're like, I just need to see people reacting to this. I need to see the clip. I want to see the Thunder being upset. I want to see tweets about it. I just need more and more and more. And I was in that same moment as everybody else of like, I was like, can I find another Husky podcast to just hear people talking about it? Because there's like, there's not enough information available Right after, there's so many fucking Seahawks podcasts. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many places to go. That's why. That's why this is our our new niche. We're, we're <laughs> leaning hard into we're a Husky football podcast. I mean, I care more about Husky football. The the next day, I was like, I care about the Seahawks, but it is nowhere near the amount oh, that was, I care there was about. Nothing that could have happened to the Seahawks on <laughs> Sunday that would have ruined the high. It is UW versus Oregon. I. I care more about UW this season probably than I do about the Seahawks. And I hate Oregon more than I hate any other team in any sport. Everybody included. Oregon football is at the absolute top. Excluding because nobody. there's other shit that we need to talk about. You're missing a lot of points that we have not gotten to. Okay. This was the greatest win in the last fucking... I was the one who made that argument on 25 the years. So, okay. I looked back at it. Chris Peterson era, right? Chris Peterson yeah. probably... I, I I don't want to be dating back to like old old days of Husky football, but like let's say 1970 on or something. I think Chris Peterson is indisputably the second best Washington coach, right? Yeah. Chris Peterson did not have a signature win. I know. I agree. So you look through the Chris Peterson tenure, it and like Sark had like a signature win beating USC, but it was the stakes were kind of like it was an upset victory it wasn't like also, was it wasn't a very good usc team it was huge at the time and it was awesome and it's still a great a great win to have had that moment it was just like uh look we're back on the map after yes. a year in purgatory and i still always will have love for sark for his tenure here but like M more than almost anyone oh about sark Lit literally we fucking sat through an own 12 season I if anybody wants to talk shit about coach sark he he's the one the domino starts 
this this particular domino. This is Coach Sark's hiring was the Russell Wilson trade to Kalen DeBoer's Devin Witherspoon. Only I don't, you could I don't only, think that math checks you out. You could only listen to the podcast and understand that comparison. But <laughs> I'm gonna go with like yeah, it was gonna be a depressing. Uh, it's like trading Eric Snow and you end up with. Uh, Richard Lewis drafting Richard sure. Lewis is something in there. If Richard Lewis ever achieved anything in his career, oh, yeah. how dare you! Um, no, 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 the, the 05 Sonics, come on. Um, that's third pound brother Richard Lewis to you, <laughs> sir. This is not personal, Richard Lewis. So, anyway, the Chris Peterson tenure, right? Indisputably, one of the best time period is probably the second best time period of it's our like time. Trading Mark Langston and ending up with Freddie Garcia and Carlos Guillen, <laughs> but. When you look at it, he lost the the signature win against Oregon was against a bad Oregon team, and obviously, like no disrespect to seventy to twenty one, one of the greatest wins against Oregon of all time. No disrespect to the point. So that was a huge victory, but it was different, right? It wasn't the same as having a very good Oregon team and beating them. It was not. He went to New Year's Six Bowls three years in a row, lost, 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 right? Played at Auburn, not to Bo Nix. I mean, I do think there's an element of like, this is one of the things that annoys me in sports is like, the big game is whatever it what it is the next game. So like, they did win two Pac-12 championship but wait, games. Listen, hold on. Game day is in Seattle against USC. Lost that game. The previous biggest crowd at Husky Stadium lost. Lost to Boise State when he was there. The biggest wins under Chris Peterson's tenure, this is no disrespect to Chris Peterson, who's an amazing coach, but so many players in the NFL, literally ushered the program into a, a new era of being in the place where they're able to be going to the Big Ten, because apparently it's really hard to go to the Big Ten, to join the ranks of Rutgers. But like the Chris Peterson deserves all due respect for that time period. But his, his biggest win was a Pac-12 championship against Colorado, which... The, everybody was when Colorado left for the Big Twelve. They were the butt of the joke. It was Colorado. It was a it was a Pac twelve championship win against. Well, Utah. I just don't think that Dan Lanning knows his Pac twelve championship game history. <laughs> it was it was a Pac twelve championship win against Utah in a close game, but like and, and a really ugly game. Both of those were just not pleasant to watch at all. And those are two teams, the two newest teams to the Pac twelve. There's no rivalry. There's no history. It's just like, we're not going to look back and think. I couldn't tell you. Any, I remember the Byron Murphy pick six. That is it from those two games combined. Yeah. So they're kind of just. You didn't mention the Stanford win. That's, that's what I was going to say. Oh, His okay. signature win is a Friday night, 44 to six, against a Stanford team that came in and had kind of kind of beaten the Huskies quite a few times. They were a foil to us, Stanford. And. It was a monster win. I think that Stanford team ended up being good, but not amazing. No, they ended up being fine. They ended up being fine. They were, they but were they overrated. seemed good at the time. I don't think that's what this Oregon Ducks team is. I don't think so either. And they're also, you just cannot have as big of a victory against Stanford as you can have against Oregon. Like, uh, I, I remember someone who used to really hate Stanford. I still hate Stanford, but you're, it just means more here thing. The people of Stanford cannot care enough about football That's a fair for point. it to matter that much. Oregon has fans. We saw some of them. Even when Stanford was like BDS forty three to forty one to three in the pouring rain in 
uh, Jim Harbaugh's last season there. I recall. There's still one of those Stanford fans like gloating about it. In no, the you're stands. just like this sucks. <laughs> That's it. It's just like this. This. This is this is a shitty day that I'm having. But it would have been a lot shittier if there were Stanford fans. Um, fortunately, part of the reason that I hate Stanford is that they don't care. So, it. But it was like it. It's a fine victory. I remember it. I remember being so excited going into it. It was in the Peltoncast era. I think we were nervous about it. Of course it was in the Peltoncast era, yeah. So, but that being your signature win, at no point aside from that victory on that Friday night, did Chris Peterson have a monster game? Did did like, Chris Peterson's Husky football team have a monster game to the magnitude of this and win? And I think that's what makes this feel different, especially after... The, vi- the win last year in Oregon. Being able to beat Oregon twice, this is like the rivalry with Oregon is too... It's not quite... It's not fucking War Eagle or Roll Tide, but like there's a reality that people in Ohio State might not be as happy with Ryan Day as they should be despite all the winning because he doesn't beat Michigan. This is the game that matters. And that's the other thing that I'll give Chris Peterson respect for. The total domination over Wazoo, Right. Complete and utter domination of Wazoo year after year. Respect after to Jimmy year. Lake on that one too, and that that is an impressive thing. It, Never honestly, got a chance to coach a game against Washington State as head coach. It is not beating them all of those years. They were never as good of a team as Oregon probably is now, and it just doesn't matter as much as Oregon. That's the reality. Beating Oregon is a bigger game, and that's been borne out now as they are a protected rival. We are in the Big Ten. We know we're going to be playing Oregon every year. We don't know if we're going to be playing Wazoo every year. We think we will. We would like to be. But this is it. This is who we've got. We are stuck in this 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 terrible marriage with Oregon, and we hate it, and we love it at the same time. But this is who we have to beat. And Kalen DeBoer has been head coach of the University of Washington for two seasons, and he's beaten those motherfuckers back-to-back seasons. Woo! As many times as Steve Sarkisian and Chris Peterson beat the Hus- Ducks combined. And Tyrone Willingham, maybe? I don't yes! Think they won under Tyrone Willingham either. <laughs> Rick Neuheisel. He had some success, success against Oregon. Uh, we should note, by the way, that uh, Troy Dannon had his introductory press conference last week after we recorded the pod. One thing he talked about was the challenge of continuing the Apple Cup because the Huskies' business model is predicated on having seven home games per season. Currently... The Washington State home away is aligned with Oregon, which is now the swing in the Big Ten between whether the Huskies have five home games or four. So something is going to have to give there. They can't continue playing the series on the current schedule under UW's financial terms. What, What does that mean? Like either they'd have to play at an neutral site for a year or stop it for a year and then restart it. And then they could go to Pullman after that. Something something along those lines, but it would have to be offset years from the Oregon home game. If if Wazoo doesn't want is refuse if UW is like, hey, can we do it on a neutral site for a year or whatever, and Wazoo's like, no, it would be such a cooking of it. I mean, I w- I can't uh, really blame them. But the reality also, is... Also, the neutral site is going to be Seattle. <laughs> yeah, I, so I can think of a city that is pretty neutral. <laughs> it's not, it's a, lot a pretty fans, favorable well, deal it's for not, you. Know. It's not going to be in Yakima. It's the Pulp Springs of Washington. People are going to want to get there right after Thanksgiving. 
Uh, can we play it in, wait, is Ellensburg the halfway point? Yeah. Or is, you think Yakima is closer? <laughs> Look, we're doing you a favor. <laughs> uh, no, that, that makes sense though. But like, I, I think that they will figure that out because again, I, I Wazoo do. needs the when game. When Troy Dannon mentioned this, uh, you know, President Anna Marie Kause said, there are some conversations that you're not privy to yet, basically. <laughs> she happening. was like, so. cool the fuck off. We've barely <laughs> talked about this. No, he, she was like, we're already well down that road with Washington State. So yeah. I do think it's going to continue. I feel like that's a conversation they maybe should have had with Troy Dannon before the press conference. <laughs> you would think. That should have prepped him for that question. All right, anything else on the last week's game? <laughs> so good. It was. We haven't even mentioned the Oregon oh. fan who angrily kicked a trash can. After I, the game. Did he kick it or did he pull push it, it down? I don't know. Something. I wasn't looking. It was violent. It was a violent move. It reminded us all, of course, of you kicking a trash can after you'd have lost to BYU during the aforementioned 0-12 season. Honestly, I stand by it. That was the most bullshit fucking penalty. Jake Locker scores the touchdown, flips the ball in the air, and the extra point to send the game to overtime against what we thought was a very good BYU team. It still haunts me to this day. Wow, haunts you to this yeah. day. Back-to-back wins against Oregon. Whatever. <laughs> Three New Year's <laughs> Six playoff games. Doesn't matter. Get a rest I, that I'm sorry, but like, I don't know. People are going to get mad at me. I'm not, I'm not even going to say it. You just, it would have been nice to have won one of them. <laughs> I mean, I agree. It would have been nice to win one of them. That's, I still think I would trade the Owen 12s. Like, I'm happy to have the UW fan existence that includes an Owen 12 season in our time in season, is season ticket holders compared to just about anyone in the Pac 12 besides Oregon and I, I don't know, maybe USC. USC sucks. Uh, and kudos to the Oregon fan who subsequently came along oh, and, yeah. and put that trash can was, back. It, it was place. very just much like, I'm uh, so sorry for, for Part of the for general us. conviviality. There's a Oregon story today about Caleb Williams once like part ownership of whatever team is going to draft them. And it's like, I want a lot of things. <laughs> That's prohibited in the rules. <laughs> they, they, they really literally came up with a rule. Strictly prohibited. And also you're just like, dude, like you're going to be on whatever team has the first pick. Sorry. Maybe somebody will trade for it. But th- this idea that a college quarterback, I'm like, Caleb Williams, I don't think he's going to be a bust. He could be a bust in the NFL. There have certainly been better college quarterbacks who have not developed into quality NFL starters. He, he looks good, but like... All right, let's talk about this Saturday's game against Arizona State. Believe it or not, after this weekend, the Huskies will have only two home games remaining this season, which makes me glad that I'm going to be seeing them. them. Wait, Really? Makes me glad that I am seeing them on the road in addition to uh, the two remaining. I may also. We'll see. Yeah. TBD on that one. Uh, Arizona. 11 11, Utah. I'm not going to be there. And neither is Katie. Oh, boy. I know. That's it's a big one. We're going to be in LA for Flogna. Even Baby Fantasy Genius won't be there. Uh, it's been a rough start at Arizona State for 33-year-old former Oregon offensive quitter Kenny Dillingham, who replaced Herm Edwards as head coach. Uh, they added 33 transfers to the roster this uh, season, but then struggled to beat FCS schools Southern Utah in the season opener and have yet to beat an FBS opponent in a 1-5 in five start that is Arizona State's worst since World War II. The low point was a 29-0 shutout at home by Fresno State, but the Sun Devils have shown signs of progress since then, losing at Cal into Colorado by three points in each of their last two games. 
Uh, that's come using three quarterbacks. True freshman Jaden Rashada opened the season as a starter before aggravating an injury that was expected to sideline him four to six weeks a month ago. Uh, Arizona State, considering making sure that they redshirt him by playing him no more than four games this season. Trenton Bourget, who came off the bench against the Huskies last year to go 15 of 21 for 182 yards and three touchdowns and lead the upset win, which was the last loss for the Huskies, who have Ugh. since lost, have won 13 consecutive games now. Uh, started week three before living with a foot injury. Then Notre Dame transfer Drew Pine started against USC before Bourget returned to start the last two games, play reasonably well. Uh, still, overall, Dillingham's specialty offense has been the Sun Devils' weakness. They rank 117th Yikes. in FBI offensive efficiency, 130th in special teams, and 111th overall, lowest of any opponent the Huskies have faced thus far. Was he the Oregon offensive coordinator last year? Yes. I will say... Just spent one year there. He spent one season in Oregon? Yeah. And now is the head coach at Arizona State? Yep. Where was he before, in? Uh, I, I believe he had some experience at Florida State and maybe Auburn. If I Note to self... Become college football head coach. Like, what in the hell? Like, the amount, the, the, what he has done to get can't, to the can't point. can't say the Oregon offense has really missed him much this season. The rise of Kenny Dillingham is, like, meteoric, right? One season is the Auburn. I mean, there's some early stuff, right, from Memphis. Did he? Was that the season they played against UW 2019? No, uh, no. it wasn't, no. Uh, two seasons as the offensive coordinator, quarterback coach at Florida State. One season in Oregon. Head coach at Arizona State right after that. Welcome to one in five, Kenny Dillingham. I was about to say, I, I thought that his favorite artist from the favorite artists uh, of all college football coaches uh, that happened, Brett McMurphy did over the summer, yeah. was I thought it was Luke Combs. I had that wrong. No. I had that wrong in my head. And I was going to say this motherfucker only knows one song. And it's a Tracy Chapman cover. <laughs> so I will save that for Jake Dickert. In the Apple Cup. In the Apple Cup. But uh, Kenny Dillingham drops a Jupiter. I mean, Ken Kenny, that's like classic rock when you are 33 years old. <laughs> that is true. I didn't put that together. The, the train's greatest work came when he was a, not even a teenager. Yeah, no. That, that would be like me being like Guns N' Roses is my favorite band when I'm 33 or something. Man. Also, I'm not here to compare Guns N' Roses to Train. <laughs> I, I think for what it's worth. Uh, it, it's, I don't even know who the 1980s version of Train is. That's, that's a separate podcast. We'll do I'm going to think on that one. Year end. Uh, Arizona State ranks ninth in the Pac-12 in rushing EPA. Sacramento State transfer Cam Scadaboo averaging just 3.9 yards per carry. He has been dangerous as a receiver. Only Elijah Badger has more receiving yards for Arizona State. Opponents have been better against the ASU defense in terms of EPA per rush than per pass. Thus far, Caleb Williams, the only QB to throw for at least 300 yards against the Sun Devils. You can see why he's got some demands. Uh, but USC <laughs> ran for 213 yards in that game. Cal had 196 on 48 carries the following week. They did stiffen against Colorado, allowing just 56 rushing yards and 295 total. Part of that pass defense pressure with Prince Dorbaugh recording six sacks thus far. BJ Green, four. The Huskies should win this game comfortably. I I don't know. It's like a, I like that it's a little bit of a revenge game. I am happy that post it is, it is their only opportunity. Like this this is it against Arizona State. I don't think they're scheduling them every other year. <laughs> this, wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Damn, rip this. Like all of these teams, it might be the last time that we play them for a long time. Wow. Yeah, it's the last two or three of the Pac-12. 
I just want to let you know, Arizona State, I will not miss you. <laughs> I will not miss those sun- sunny Saturdays at Dippy. I will not be thinking about you, Arizona State. <laughs> oh, wow. You and Kenny Dillingham can have a lot of fun. I'm... Huskies are going to win this 100% of the time. <laughs> 100%. I don't think about you at all. Uh, I I don't know. Like, I just can't. I really can't imagine a scenario that the Huskies lose this game. I guess I'm going to knock on the 100% is too close. It's like a 98%. I'm going to say 95. I do think they're better than their FPI a little bit with Forge at quarterback. I'm happy that this isn't a big game the week after Oregon because I do think similar to how I feel and how hyped I still am about winning last week. I think that that could have, could have permeated throughout the uh, ha- having a couple of weeks of easier games before the schedule really, really ramps up is, I think, the right way that this is structured. It's nice to have a little break, take a breather post-Oregon. Reset. Yeah. Yeah. The back half of the schedule is loaded. The back third of the schedule, I guess, we're currently at the halfway point, and Arizona State and Stanford are coming. I mean, so. USC definitely looks like... I think we already felt like before the demolish, being demolished against Notre Dame, I think we already felt like USC's defense was going to be roasted by this UW offense. And after that happened, it's kind of just like not a doubt in my mind. So that one looks a little bit different to me. It's a road game. It's at USC. It's going to be a hard game. But I don't... It could be a Sunday, Sunday, Saturday at Memorial Coliseum. I don't think it's going to be 98 degrees. It's not going to be early October. The reality is, I think what is very likely is, we'll see, Utah plays Oregon this weekend. And that'll give us a very interesting perspective about where those two teams are. I think I am cheering for Oregon in that game. Uh, but they have a much harder road, or at least short term, they have a harder road than the Huskies do. So that's going to be a fascinating one to see. I We'll see what happens in that game. I think that Oregon is the best team on the schedule. I think that Oregon is the best team on the schedule. With home field, it is not necessarily clear that hosting Oregon is the hardest game on the schedule, especially given... There is an outside possibility those two teams play again. Where's the uh, that makes me so terrified, by the way. Yeah, sure. neutral site. Like I was like, if we play Oregon again, we'd better be undefeated going into that, just being guaranteed, feeling pretty close to guaranteed to making it to the college football playoff. Because I don't. Uh, so. Can you can you look up FBI? Have you already? What is national FBI after? Well, the Huskies FBI went down in response. What? <laughs> I forget who it was who had a much bigger win that moved ahead of them. Uh, but they their chances of making the playoff are now fourth best. <sighs> I mean, Michigan is, like, horrifying. I think Florida State had somehow been behind them and jumped them. But uh, playoff percentage is 39%. Wait, so o- overall rankings. Wait, I want to go through where UW and Oregon are and FBI. I thought they were higher. Oregon is still higher in FBI. So this is the predictive version. FPI efficiency, the Huskies are number two in the country. Yeah, show me the show me the efficiency. Come on. Michigan is number one, then UW, then Oklahoma, and Oregon. I mean, that Oregon team just... Lurking in 10th, again. Third among teams in the Pacific Northwest, but 10th in the country, Oregon State. Some some definite shades of the 2000 season. Wow. God, that Beavs team. Also, Duke being that high is shocking. Uh Georgia low-key pretty overrated. Nobody's saying it. Um, but Oregon is, UW is second in efficiency, FBI efficiency. Oregon is fourth. Yeah. So, like, that is, it's just a 
that was a really hard game. It was. I agree with the assessment. <laughs> like, people kept complaining about the defense in the crowd during the game. I'm like, have you guys seen these these guys play against other teams? Yeah. No, I mean, they beat like, they Colorado. They everyone. The, the margin of victory against Colorado and then beating that team is, I love love to look at it. Uh, there are going to be a few of these games, right? Ohio State is playing Penn State. Oregon's playing Utah this weekend. These teams are going to start throughout the season matching up against each other, and they're going to be big ones. But so far, that is up there with the biggest wins the entire season. Without question. On that note, <sighs> we're Thanks doing you listening. a favor. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We're doing you a favor. <laughs>